humans of the world. It's me, Ellie Krug, Ellie 2.0 Radio and lovely AM 950. How are you? Happy Saturday to you. Um, happy warm Saturday. If uh, you are in Minnesota listening to this, you are sick of the weather. There's no other way to put it. Because we have literally gone a week uh, without the sun. The sun poked out a little bit yesterday. But today, today is supposed to be good on Saturday. So um, I'm thrilled to be back, thrilled to be talking to you with a big interview. is with Dr. Rebecca Thoman, who will talk about efforts to make medical aid and dying an option here in Minnesota. You will, it is, you will be very interested in that interview. In my C block, I'm going to talk about Legacy. I work as an idealist, idealist, but the idea of about legacy, okay? But here in my A block, okay, here we are. Here in my A block, um, I, want, I, I don't have a featured idealist. Um, life has been hectic. But I want to highlight, though, a column in yesterday's New York Times. So that would be a column on, uh, on April 8th, okay, uh, in the New York Times titled, Good Morning, How Did LGBT Rights Again Become the Subject of a Culture War? It's by David Leonhardt and Ian uh, Prasad Philbrick. Um, it is a great, great column. It's fascinating and, 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 you know, there's so much going on, I know, and here we are again talking about LGBTQ, and we'll get to particularly about transgender. I know that. I know. And I know that I may have some listeners like, I've had enough of this, okay? But I'm sorry. We are under attack. This article, okay, if you don't read any other, it's a great synopsis of what's going on in the country right now. It really is. And, um, and where things seem to be headed. So they write, Leonhardt and uh, Prasad uh, Philbrick write this, quote, for a few years, the battles over LGBT rights seemed to be fading from the American political scene. The Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage in 2015, and most Americans supported the decision. During the past few national campaigns, most Republican politicians, including Donald Trump, who called himself a friend of the gay community, ha, largely ignored LGBT issues. One of Trump's Supreme Court nominees, uh, Neil Gorsuch, even wrote the opinion in a 2020 case that protected gay and transgender workers from discrimination, unquote. So that piece starts out, hey, it looks like everybody, everybody, uh, you know, maybe it's all over as, as it relates to opposition. But Leonhardt and uh, Prasad Philbrick go on to say that the, quote, brief truce, unquote, over LGBTQ rights now appears to be over. And there now seems to be a, quote, new boldness aimed at reclaiming the cultural landscape. What accounts for this new boldness? Well, some of it was an initial reluctance to attack LGBTQ people for fear of alienating younger voters that Republicans wanted to court. Okay, because, oh, by the way, there was a there was a gal. I think it was a Gallup poll that came out. Two months ago, finding that, you know, like 20% of Generation Z people, okay, so these are folks born between 90, 1995 and 2012, 
that 20% of them identify as LGBTQ, okay? So so that's one thing that the Republicans held off attacking LGBTQ rights um, around, beginning in 2015. But, but then uh, the other factor had to do with Trump. While he was in office, those who were intolerant of LGBTQ people were willing to hold off on efforts to, to um, beat back the clock because Trump was appointing conservative federal judges at a record pace. And that was placating them. That was making them happy. And those judges are now in place, okay? And conservatives are no longer content with pretending to tolerate LGBTQ people, particularly my group, transgender people. As Leonhardt and Prasad Philbrick point out, American public opinion is less favorable, more conservative on the topics of gender identity and trans rights than they are on marriage equality. So people are more – across America, they're more willing to accept the idea that a man could marry another man or a woman can marry another woman and they're less accepting of the idea that this gender identity thing is real and that transgender and non-binary people have a right to live their lives as who they – as they choose. So that explains why we're this, we've seen nearly 200 bills targeting transgender people this year. And here's the, here's the count. It's, as in the article, there are 14 states now that ban transgender girls from participating in sports, starting at kindergarten all the way up through the end of senior college years. So if you're a transgender girl, tough luck. You're never going to be able to play sports ever in any kind of institution associated with public funding. Um, then there are three states. Uh, Alabama um, will become the fourth. That will happen probably the coming week. Um, three states um, uh, have uh, – hold on a second, Ellie. Get your show notes. Have enacted bans on gender-affirming care for trans kids younger than 19. The the Alabama bill that just was passed this week and waiting governor's signature, that will threaten health care providers – I assume also therapists with 10-year prison sentence if they treat a transgender kid. Um, in their piece, Leonhardt and Prasad Philbrick write, quote, uh, when, should, uh, when should schools start to teach children about gender identity? Should schools be required to tell parents if a child switches gender identity at school? On several of these questions, Republicans see an opportunity to cast Democrats as out of touch. Uh, the right the right is using trans identity among kids as a wedge, uh, says our colleague Emily Brazelin, who writes about legal issues. Brazelin points out that this political strategy relies partly on lies that seem intended to stoke fear and hatred. In Florida, for example, some Republicans have falsely claimed that schools' lessons about sexuality are really an attempt <laughs> to groom students. That's the new phrase this year, grooming Grooming. I'm a groomer. The people are, you know, I'm transgender. I talk to, to trans kids and non-binary kids because I care about them. I want them to know that there's an adult that sees them and values them. Yeah, in some places I would be called a groomer. And I'm sorry, I'm not grooming anybody, okay? Just, just to make sure we get that out there. Then we have Florida's ban on talking about in, about class... Florida's ban prohibiting classroom discussions about gender identity or sexual orientation. The don't say gay bill, this too, is something that Alabama is going to adopt. 
And although not all red state um, uh, governors have gone along with marginalizing transgender youth, okay, the governors of Utah, Indiana, and last uh, on Thursday night, Governor Andy Bashir of Kentucky all vetoed anti-trans youth sports bills. Uh, the Utah legislature uh, did go on and override Governor Spencer Cox's veto of the transgender bill in that state. Thus, um, it is possible here for some Republican leaders to have courage and resist and resist intolerance and get off the intolerance and marginalization wagon train. Stepping away from the article, I fear that things will only get worse for LGBTQ people and particularly for my community, transgender people. Two things, listeners, are likely to happen in the next seven months. First, the Supreme Court likely will gut Roe v. Wade. I know that hurts so many people to hear. I suspect that it will do that by reversing um, its, its prior acceptance of the concept of an inherent right of privacy, which the Supreme Court began to articulate, this, that there's an inherent right of privacy. The government doesn't have the right to intrude on private lives, okay, began to articulate that right of privacy in the 1960s, beginning when it struck down Connecticut's law banning birth control. Do you remember that? I mean, in the 1960s, Griswold versus Connecticut, for my lawyers in the room, in the night, as, as, as recent as the mid-1960s, there were states that said women could not get birth control. They were illegal illegal to prescribe birth control for women, okay? So beginning in the 60s, the Supreme Court starts to recognize this right to privacy. It went on and later on in 1967 in uh, Loving versus Virginia that to hold that interracial marriage, that laws against that were, were unconstitutional, okay? And then went on the right of abortion, that Roe v. Wade is tied directly to this right of privacy, you know, that state doesn't have the right to intrude on a woman's life until a certain point when the fetus um, becomes viable. And then the right to sexual privacy, such as banning uh, anti-sodomy laws that targeted gay men and women. That's Lawrence v. Texas. That law came down in uh, the late in the 1990s. Um, and then finally, marriage equality in 2015. Marriage equality based on the concept that people have the right, have the right, okay, to live their lives privately absent some compelling state interest. So once the Supreme Court declares that there is no inherent right to privacy in the United States Constitution, then we're back to relying on state rights. And at present, only 24 states have laws protecting LGBTQ people. The second thing that I anticipate occurring over the next several months is that conservative Republicans will sweep the midterms, both in the Senate and in the House. And with that, look for dozens of bills aimed at erasing any federal rights protecting LGBTQ people, like Title VII which the Supreme Court cited in, 19, in 2020 as the basis to prohibit employment discrimination against LGBTQ people. I can see a Republican majority in the House and Senate introducing bills to override that decision by specifically saying that Title VII, okay, does not protect LGBTQ people, putting it into Title VII. I can see that happening. And then I see, of course, President Joe vetoing that, 
But they would they very well could have the majorities to override override the veto, just like what happened in Utah. None of this is at all good. None at all. Okay, go check out Leonhardt's and Prescal uh Prasad's uh, Philbrick's article in the New York Times, okay, that was the New York Times yesterday um, uh, titled, Good Morning, How Did LGBT Rights Become the Subject of a Culture War? Again, become the subject of a culture war. Okay, thanks. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, I'm going to come back with a big interview with Rebecca Thoman, who's advocating for uh, a dignified way to die. And uh, you'll find it very fascinating. Okay, you're listening to me, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio. Hi. I want to We're back, LE 2.0 Radio. All right, everyone, this is now the time for the big interview. You know I try and do a big interview every week. And uh, with me today is uh, Dr. Rebecca Thoman, who is trained in family medicine and community health. Um, She's been working in the realm of healthcare and public health policy for over 20 years. Uh, Her goal is to bring the voice of clinicians, at the bedside into policy discussions so that lawmakers, people in St. Paul, have a better understanding of how their policy decisions impact patient care. Dr. Thoman, I'm, actually, I'll call you Rebecca. Are you, are you there? How are you today? I am. Thanks so much for inviting me. Oh, oh well, welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. Now, listeners, uh, we have Rebecca here on the show because about uh, two and a half months ago, we had Dana Nelson on, I know my regular listeners will remember, Dana is battling cancer very courageously. And uh, I had her on the show because she had become an advocate for end-of-life options. And and now, Rebecca, I'm having you on the show because you are with Compassion and Choices, and that's what uh, that's kind of the underlying organization that Dana and I spoke about. And uh, you're also with uh, Doctors with Dignity. And I wonder if you could, first of all, tell us about those two programs and, and explain to us. I'm going to just kind of give you the, you know, the, the Hail Mary. Explain to us what's going on in Minnesota right now relative to end-of-life um, choice care options. Sure. Well, thank you so much. Compassion and Choices is a national nonprofit Our mission is to improve care, expand options, and empower everyone to chart their own end-of-life journey. Um, We have staff in half the states across the country, and we work in a number of arenas. We do a lot of education and providing resources around end-of-life planning. Uh, We have a legal department. We also have an advocacy department, of which I am um, involved. And our advocacy We do some federal advocacy work, and then also at the state level, what we are trying to do is expand access to medical aid in dying, which is really like the very first Oregon Death with Dignity Act. And so that is a state-by-state campaign to allow residents of the state to have access to medical aid in dying. Um, So Doctors for, and I'll talk more about what that is, and Doctors for Dignity is an initiative of Compassion, Compassion and Choices, and we are a community of physicians 
Um, we support a full range of end-of-life options for our patients, including medical aid in dying, and we also work to reduce health care disparities at the end of life. Ah. Okay. All right. Well, great. Thank you for that really great comprehensive overview. Um, so, so Compassion and Choice is a national organization, but it has, um, you know, Minnesota chapter for uh, lack of a better phrase. What, what, what's going on in Minnesota? Tell us about, about that as it relates to medical aid and dying. Well, we're, we're continuing our efforts um, that have actually started back in 2015 to introduce legislation that would authorize medical aid in dying. So if you think of death with dignity, that's sometimes used um, as an equal phrase. But medical aid in dying is a very specific clinical practice, and it allows patients who are terminally ill with six months or less to live, who also have full decision-making capacity and are, ad- are adults, the option to ask for and receive a medication that they could then self-ingest for a peaceful death. Um, there's also a process that's in the law which requires two separate to evaluate the patient for them to get a whole series of disclosures about all their end-of-life options um, and full a full assessment to be sure that they have capacity, et cetera. So there are some safeguards built into the law. And it is currently available in 10 states and the District of Columbia. So about 22% of residents of this country have access to medical aided dying at the end of life. And we have a lot of information about how the laws have worked in other states. Oregon, of course, has had the law since 1997, so 24 years of, of information and data. And it's very clear that the law is working as designed in many ways. So, for example, who's using medical aid in dying? Mostly, primarily, the number one uh, diagnosis is people with end-stage cancer, like Dana, people who are um, clearly have full cognitive capacity, but they are suffering, they're in pain, um, and they would they have just decided that they don't want to go through these final weeks or days um, of suffering and would prefer to take a medication that will allow them to go to sleep peacefully. They're they're with their families gathered around. They can say their goodbyes and have a peaceful exit. And um, most of the patients who opt for this also are in hospice care, so they are receiving maximum comfort care. So it's it's not something that is just decided rashly. It is not something that's that's given to you the day you get your diagnosis. These are folks really who, like Dana, they want to live. And they're, they're getting maximum treatment. But when they get to the point where the treatment is no longer helpful, then they want this option. Um, and then the second largest group who use this are people with neurodegenerative disorders like ALS, um, for whom we do not have a very peaceful way for them to end their lives. Um, so they would have this option as long as they maintain the capacity to swallow, then they could choose medical aid and dying. Okay. Okay. These are, as a matter of fact, just this week, uh, I spoke with a, a classmate from high school who's dying of cancer. He's in hospice care, you know, and, and I mean, there's a lot of, of course, and we have a lot of listeners who understand about the, the suffering from family members or dear friends. Tell me this. Uh, we've got 10 states that, oh, and Rebecca, let me just make clear to you and to my listeners I am 150% in favor of what you're proposing. 
okay, in terms of legislation. This is, this is something very important to me as a human. Um, the 10 states, what was the most recent state to um, enact legislation enabling medical aid in dying? That was New Mexico, and they passed the law last year in 2021. Okay. What's the closest state to Minnesota um, that has uh, um, such Boy, a I'm not good with geography. Uh, <laughs> it's either going to be Colorado or Vermont. You tell me. Uh, I think it'd be Colorado. Okay. Okay. <laughs> now, but I'm sensing, all right, so, you know, Oregon and Colorado, and I'm sensing these are all states that, and, and uh, I mean, I, we can't get past the politics involved here. These would be states really with Democratic-controlled kind of legislatures. Am I right about that? Although, well, they're primarily West Coast states, yep. Southwest, West Coast, and um, New England states. Yeah, I guess, Although, well, Vermont is also a, spreading to the mid-Atlantic. Vermont is actually a Republican state, but Vermont, like, cuts its own path regardless <laughs> of whatever is going on. Why do you – so why do you – why do you feel – you know, what's your gut reaction as to why this has been able to take hold in, you know, Western states and let's throw Vermont because Vermont's just its its own its own thing. Why there and not other places? Well, you know, when you look at surveys, we've known they've been doing surveys on this topic since 1997. And we know that the majority of Americans support this option as it's described with these limitations right. applying only to terminally ill folks. We know the majority of people in Minnesota support this. We've had a Minnesota survey and it cuts across geography, age and uh, religion and political background. So all major political party affiliates support medical aid and dying. So it really is a nonpartisan issue. And my example of this is uh, the, the, the law passed in Colorado in 2016 by a ballot initiative. Remember the election of 2016? So we had right. two candidates for president. One got 43 percent of the vote. One got 44 percent of the vote. The ballot initiative got 68 hmm. percent of the vote. So we know that this cuts across politics. However, with so many other things that the majority of people support, when it gets into the legislature, it can become divisive. Um, but, you know, what what makes a difference? Also, in almost every state where this has passed through their legislature, it has been done with bipartisan support. So the thing that really is important here is that lawmakers need to hear from people to know that this is important. It's tough because so many of our advocates are people who either are facing a terminal illness or family members of loved ones who right. suffered. And, you know, it's not kind of the top of mind issue for people like climate changes. But the more we can get people talking to their lawmakers about why this is important, the more we can nudge them into action. And it's always the personal stories like Dana, who shared her personal yep. experience. That's really what changes the hearts and minds of lawmakers. And, you know, they're all human and they're all feeling people. And I think the more we talk to them about this, the more they're going to understand the need for it. Well, so um, in Min let's specifically talk about Minnesota. I mean, last year there was a, a bill introduced into what, both the House and the Senate. Um, and and it died last year. Did it Was it reintroduced this year or did you not get the support to even get it introduced? Well, the, so the bill, the legislature is on a two-year cycle, a biennium. And so the bills have been introduced, the same 
okay. very similar version of the bill has been introduced uh, every year since 2015. So 15, 17, 19, 21. And the same two lawmakers have done the introduction, which is Senator Chris Eaton, who is a nurse from Brooklyn Center, and Representative Mike Feiberg, who's a public health law attorney from um, Golden Valley. And these two have really been the champions. They've introduced it every year. We've managed to have, over that period of time, um, there have been three public hearings on the bill, both all in health committees, and those have been done uh, in 2015 and 16. There was a hearing. Again, we had one in 2019. Um, COVID has had an impact in a couple of ways. It's interesting how it's sliced both ways. One is all the attention has been into dealing with the pandemic. And so, so many other issues have fallen down. Right. Down. But it's also really raised awareness for people about how difficult and painful dying can be. And so in some ways, it's really increased people's awareness of their need to plan and their desire to have options. So the bill was introduced, like you said, last year. It did not get a hearing. Part of that has to do with the fact that there are so many other things, so little time, which is why we need to increase the the urgency of this, because you know, multiple, several of my really strong advocates have died um, without having this option, and they suffered, and it was not the way that they chose to die. So, hmm. you know, it's a matter of making it an urgent, urgent issue. Did any of your advocates take their own life? Well, what they did was they ended up stopping eating and drinking, hmm. and so they went through that process where it took about 10 days um, yep. And they dehydrated, and that was that was the way that they could they could end going through that final process of pain. But all the suffering during those ten days, I mean, and it's hard on it's hard on families, yeah, too, for sure, for sure. So, who's aligned against this in Minnesota? I mean, let's specifically just deal with this. I mean, as I was doing my research, you know, generally on. Um, medical aid and dying, you know, across the country, not specifically in Minnesota. But one of the things I saw was that, you know, the those kinds of bills, these kinds of bills have been opposed by the uh, long-term care industry. I didn't, I guess there is an industry for that. Um, and I mean, is that, are you finding that to be the case here in Minnesota? Well, I want to preface this by saying, when you were talking about the voices at the Capitol, who are in opposition, they are the leaders, and they don't necessarily always reflect the will of their members. Sure. So the largest groups that are opposing us are doing it based on their religious beliefs. So the Catholic Church um, and some right-to-life organizations, they believe, according to their religious beliefs, that this is just wrong. So, And I respect that they believe that. Mm -hmm. I understand if um, I was raised Catholic, I understand Catholic suffering and <laughs> I, you know, more power to them. <laughs> However, it's really important that everybody's personal values are respected at the end of life. And so the problem is when those religious beliefs start to enter into policy decisions that affect everybody. And so it's even though we you don't hear a lot about the religious objection, that's really where most of the opposition is coming. So the same groups that would also oppose um, 
abortion or gender reaffirming. Yeah, or, uh, or transgender or transgender people. Yes, <laughs> right. It's sort of that same sort of. But you know, those people don't represent most people. I mean, they are definitely. You know, I compare it to guns. Most Americans want really sensible gun violence reduction efforts, but we don't get that, even though the majority is for it. So it's it's kind of the same thing where what the people want has to be translated into who we elect and, you know, our representatives really standing up for us. What's the Governor Walls said about this? Has he, you know, does Governor he Walls has not. Position? He's not made a public. He's not made a public statement about it. Um, we've talked to his staff though, and they have all the information. Um, we've continued to keep them updated and educated about it. And I believe he just, you know, it hasn't moved anywhere, so he's not had the opportunity or the need to really come out with a statement. Okay, okay, all right. Well, I'm a big fan of Governor Walls, so I just, yeah, okay. Well, so so Rebecca, let's kind of let's just sort of pivot here a little bit, all right? And I'd like to talk with about you a little bit, okay? Because you, you started a career in in as a doctor and and in medicine and and you know the broader range of public health. What what caused you to pivot to do this type of work, this kind of advocacy work? And then I'll just throw it in because all my guests get this question: Do you consider yourself an idealist? And if so, why? So I know a very broad question, but I think you can handle it. I think, you know, my training in medicine, I saw a lot of problems. And in medicine and as physicians, we're dealing with people one-on-one. And for me, there were underlying system problems that were creating uh, terrible situations for patients. And I was frustrated having to just do it over and over and over again. And I think that's what motivated me to, to move up to the policy level where it could have an impact. And so I've worked on issues like tobacco control. That's a big one where, you know, two thirds of the cancers that we suffer in this country are due to smoking and bad nutrition and poor physical activity. So there's so much about our behavior and so much of our behavior is rooted in policy that that's kind of what got me more in, interested in policy rather than simple one-on-one patient care. Uh, this issue just comes from, you know, my clinical experience, having seen people suffer mm-hmm. and my own, my, you know, my own parents suffering at the end of life. Um, it was a very different experience for both of them. And I don't know that either one of them would have wanted medical aid in dying, but I look at their situation and think, you know, if I got into that position, my father died of esophageal cancer, I might want this option. So believe me, there's some self-interest in this as well. And I would note that, you know, the majority of physicians also support this. Um, There's a strong, small subgroup, again, mostly with religious views who are against it. But most doctors are supportive and there are plenty of physicians willing to participate. And the number of doctors engaged in this is really growing around the country as more laws become enacted. So do you view yourself as an idealist? You know, and I define idealist as somebody working to change the world for the better. Uh, I hadn't thought it, of it in those terms. But, you know, for me, it's like when I see something that needs to change, I'm like a type A personality. I just got to keep doing it. Um, I don't like being told no. Uh, I'm always trying to find another way. So I don't know if that's ideological or not. I certainly have the values that I hold dear. Um, I do believe, though, that we all share a lot of those values. They're kind of human values. 
And politics is, is, is a, something that kind of gets in the way. It can facilitate or it can be a barrier to us reaching the goals that we have. And so, you know, I just have to lean in and, and deal with it and <laughs> to try to get us to where we need to be. And uh, it's really the personal stories of the people I work with, like Dana, who keep me motivated. So I, I don't know if it's ideology as much as it is um, connection to the, to the people mm-hmm. who I think um, will, ve- will benefit from this change. Right. What, do you, uh, what state do you think is going to be the next one to go? Go in favor well, there of, are a uh, number of states that are, yeah, there are a number of states that have been um, looking at the legislation and it's moved through up to certain points. Uh, Connecticut, Delaware, Massachusetts have all had hearings on this and it has started to move in those states. Maryland came very close. They had, they actually failed on a tie vote last year. It's likely to be back there. Nevada is another state where it's come up and moved, but not gone all the way. So I think those are those are some of the ones that have had the most movement. The Midwest is hard to crack, and let me tell you, it's going to be either Minnesota or Illinois. So we're in a we're in a, a little um, frenemy battle here to see who's going to be first, because we know people in the Midwest want this. Um, I think Minnesota has always been a leader. I would love right. to see Minnesota be first in the Midwest, but uh, Illinois is uh, Illinois is after us for that title. So, uh, well, and and so that raises the last question I have for you, which is, are you seeing and do you have data about the the number of people who are moving to states in order to have this option? You know, there is absolutely no data about that. Um, But what I will tell you is that it is a very, very difficult thing. Um, Think of, you know, I think people really – we're really made aware of that option back in 2015 when Brittany Menard, you know, she was all over People magazine and she moved from California to Oregon. Yeah. Uh, her whole family moved there. I mean, the option to move to a whole, a, another state, leave your family, or first of all, you've got to have the resources to do that and right. people don't. And second right. of all, by the time people even maybe are considering this, they're so ill that they can't move to another state and they'd have to get a whole new care team. So the idea of doing that, um, it's really much harder than it sounds, yeah. and it's really limited to people who have the ability and and resources to do it. So it's not very practical. Yeah. Some people do it, especially if they're in a border state. They may go next door to the state near them, um, but we really don't have any idea of what the numbers are. Okay. Okay. Well, that's all right. That's very important to understand. Well, listen, uh, Rebecca, it has been wonderful to talk to you, and I really, really want to let you know I appreciate the work that you're doing around medical aid and dying. Thank you so very much for doing it. Can it's, I give our website before oh, I go? Oh, my gosh. By all means, let's do that <laughs> for sure. It's, and if people re- want to donate, tell them how to do it. <laughs> oh, well, compassionandchoices.org slash Minnesota, if you want to see the Minnesota information, compassionandchoices.org slash donate if you'd like to make a contribution. Great. Okay. All right. Well, listeners, please consider this. Okay. All right. Thank you, Ellie. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, Rebecca, thanks so very much for being on Ellie 2.0 and keep up the good work. Hang in there. If we get it passed, I'm going to have you back. Okay. All right. Thank you. Okay, great. All right, listeners, we've been speaking to uh, Dr. Rebecca uh, Thoman, who is with Compassion and Choices dot org and uh, pushing for medical aid and dying. When we come back from our break, I'll give you my C-block. Thanks. Ooh, I'll sing them all.
And we're back. LA 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Um, so uh, check out, uh, for sure, Minnesota Compassion and Choices. And do as Rebecca Thoman recommended. Go to your legislators. Tell them this is important to you. Tell them that they need they need to get this ball ball rolling. They need to get this pushed. Please. Please. And support the organization if you can, if you want to do a donation. So, all right. C-Block here. You heard me talk um, when I was speaking to uh, Rebecca Thoman um, about a friend of mine um, who is dying. He's dying of lung cancer. And I, I called him this week uh, he, and talked with him. And, and um, he's in hospice. We had a good conversation and, and I will hope I will speak with him again. I mean, I, be, yes. And it was, you know, it, I, I, he was, he was, he's a good guy, good person. But in the past two weeks, um, I've had two other classmates die. This is the class of 75. Okay. And I had to go back to Cedar Rapids for for one of those uh, classmates. Went went to uh, uh, the funeral, and it, the the place was packed. I mean, we're talking standing room only, and people, including two daughters of this man, um, speaking, you know, about him and and stuff. And 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 I I, I drove away uh, from that experience. Um, with a couple of mixed feelings. One was um, I have a very small family. Um, there are not many of us. Um, and, uh, and it got even smaller once I transitioned genders. And, and, um, and so I, I'm, I'm, I don't know. Um, I don't know whether you – know, I, I don't know how many people will, would want to come. So that's one thing. Okay, we don't need to talk about that any further. But the other thing is I started thinking about legacy. Okay? What, you know, what kind of legacy do we generally leave, all right? And the funeral in Cedar Rapids made clear that the leg- that this man had touched people both at his work and his family and and just the stories that people told about. I mean, we had we were laughing as well as crying and and but what what what's my legacy? You know, Ellie Krug. What's your legacy? And it, I mean, and it got so um, deep for me to have to think about that. I mean, I turned the radio off in the car and back from Cedar Rapids, and started talking to myself. Um, and then uh, I've been doing some journaling since then, because you know I'm 65. Who knows, right? And and I've concluded that my legacy. Um, my legacy is my words. You know, my, for the most part, idealistic words, but the words that you're hearing right now, um, I mean, I, I don't know whether this podcast will remain after Ellie Krug is no longer on, on this earth. I don't know, but YouTube will have a lot of the videos of when we tape the show. Um, but you know, you've, there's my book out there, and and uh, columns for Lavender and and Lavender Magazine and Minnesota Women's Press. I mean, by my guess, there's probably two hundred fifty, three hundred thousand, maybe even more than that, of my words printed in the world um, that people can access. And then there are interviews of me and all of that stuff. 
And I don't tell you this to make me feel, seem like a poor, a important or for aggrandizement or anything like that. I share that because to me it is important um, that I have ri- that I would have rippled to others. Part of it is with my story and what um, what I lost in transitioning genders, but I also gained. Don't worry, don't worry. I, I gained Ellie Krug, and the the gain far outweighs the losses. But nonetheless, I need to make some kind of sense out of all of that loss. And I've been, that's partly why I do my work. But it's also about rippling and hoping that maybe in some way um, what words you've used or maybe the example you've provided by words um, or actions may have made a difference to someone else, maybe may have helped them in a tough patch, may have inspired them to go on when otherwise maybe they might have had more difficulty going on. I don't know. But for me, that kind of legacy is incredibly important. It is. Um, I mean, my goal is to stick around for a lot longer because, uh, listeners, there is so much I am trying to do right now I mean, in the last month, I have talked to five groups of young humans who identify as LGBTQ through their schools at their gender and sexuality alignment. Five groups is the most rewarding work that I could possibly do. I want to do more of that work. But at any rate, I hope that this was not uh, too heavy. Okay. Of course, if you get Ellie Krug on the radio, you never know what you're going to get. But you want – you know one thing that you will get and that is – that's heart. You'll always get that from me. You'll also get a good dose of authenticity. Okay, that's the end of the show. I've got to do a big thanks to my producer, Brett Johnson, who had to do a little bit about today. Uh, big thanks to uh, to uh, Chad Larson, who runs this place, who, car- who lets this show be here. And I'm very, very thankful for that. And to you, my listeners, I'm totally thankful because you tune in all the time. I'm getting more and more people are listening to podcasts and, and more and more people are, you know, I'm getting people writing to me and saying they appreciate what we do. And so thank you. Now, between now and you hear my voice next, go out, do something good, have some compassion for others and for yourself, and make the world a little bit better. Will you? Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>